Well, I've got to say that if you are a member of the church here, that uh, Dwayne is a young man, but just tremendous insight and such a, such a great leader. He is the presiding minister of our presbytery and uh, just seen him in action and dealing with situations and leading our meetings. He's a fantastic man and I, I am just humbled to uh, be in his presence and to be part of uh, the group of people that he would call friends. So it's wonderful. Also, I forgot my glasses today. So uh, it's going to be a little weird for me. The McClellan's? Is that how you say your name? McClellan's. Like the Scotch, right? Yeah. Now I'll remember. <laughs> uh, the McClellan's uh, stopped at a store and got me these. I have invisible bifocals, so I'm used to being able to look down and then look up and see. So I can only look down with these. So it might be a little confusing. My uh, real desire is that you and I would be able to live our Christian life as if all our prayers that we pray were answered and all the songs that we sing, that our lives would line up for those words. And as a pastor and as a Christian, I've been noticing some things that have been going on, some things that have kind of flown under the radar, some things that, well, when you launch something, there is a trajectory, right? The trajectory is pretty much already set, and if it's not altered, that it's going to land somewhere based on that trajectory. And I've seen the church recently, the kind of end of that trajectory, and I think we need some adjustments. I really do. And so I do believe that there is so many good things that are going on. There are so many good things that we have within our churches. We don't want to get rid of any of those. I'm not addressing any of those things at all. I'm addressing those things that we have kind of missed or that we are uh, feeling but maybe can't put our finger upon it. That's the kind of thing I want to talk about. And then the things I talk about are going to be mostly from a diagnostic viewpoint. Unfortunately, it's going to be more of a critique, I think, in your ears than it will be prescriptive, maybe what we need to do now. We do need to continue the conversation. We do need to talk about these things. We need to consider where we are and where we're going and where we really need to be. And so uh, forgive me for it being more diagnostic or critical rather than curative. All right? Still working through that part of it. Okay, let's begin. The first talk today is on how spiritual starvation leads to savoring worldliness. I believe that there is a famine in the land of the Word of God. This is ironic in an era where there is not only more materials, both new and old, available to us than ever before. We have so much available to us in the form of commentary and periodical and podcast. I mean, just to name a few, we can access... Uh, I mean, you used to have to put a lot of money forward to buy Matthew Henry's commentary. That was really something significant, or Calvin's commentaries. Or Now you can get these things free online. They're at your fingertips. You can now study the Bible 
or listen to the Bible while you're washing dishes or commuting to work. I mean, it's just, it's just an explosion. It's, a, it's like a treasure that's been opened to us, and yet I don't think that it's really affected us as much as it should because we are not as strong as we should be and as we could be. And so the spiritual starvation that I'm talking about is the fact that the Bible what it's for is it, it is words that we are supposed to be eating. And when you eat, you're getting all the things that your physical body needs. The Word is supposed to be giving to us all the things that our spiritual soul needs. And yet, I see the church not strong. I see it anemic. I see it suffering. I see it immature. Now, there are some glorious exceptions to what I'm saying. I acknowledge that. You might be one of those glorious exceptions. And if you are, hallelujah, that is fantastic. In fact, your entire church might be in a glorious exception to what I'm talking about. And that is awesome. And if so, then you need to be a case study. We need to find out how it's happening for you. But what I mean by spiritual starvation is even though there is a banquet like there's never been of material and information and, and resources at our fingertips, it's our approach to it that I think is causing us not to really benefit from the consumption. Let me give an illustration. Years ago, I was in an old bookstore. Uh, I would have been in an old bookstore yesterday if I could have been. That's just how I roll. But I was in an old bookstore years ago, and I came across a, a book by William Arnaud. Anybody ever heard of William Arnaud? He wrote a book called Laws of Heaven for Life on Earth. And what it was, it was a selection, uh, selections from the book of Proverbs that he basically less expounded on, but more devotionalized. It wasn't the whole book of Proverbs, it was just selections. And I mean, every page was just great. You know, I had like 10 pages on this, eight pages on that, five pages on that, I leafed through the whole thing. And I started buying copies when I found them, and then buying them online and giving them away. Oh, you know, especially to young men, right? And then uh, some of you are familiar with the publishing company in Michigan called Kregel or Kriegel or Cleland? I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, they republish a lot of Christian books that are out of print. And when they republished Laws of Heaven for Life on Earth, now think about that title for a moment, won't you? Laws of Heaven for Life on Earth. That sounds like what the Bible's all about, right? They republished it. And you know what they titled it? Studies in Proverbs. <laughs> so now if I buy it and give it to someone and say, look, this is not Studies in Proverbs. <laughs> I should probably just photocopy the original title and just paste it over, right? But I think that that is what is going on, especially in the Reformed churches. We are very proud, and rightly so, of of getting into the word in context and staying in context and also 
delving deep and mining the word and looking at the word and, 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 and stringing those pearls together when it comes to systematic theology and confessional language. I think that's, that's very important. I think that that is incredibly, uh, incredibly good thing. But then I ask questions like this. How many years have you been in the church as a Christian? And people will answer, you know, three years, five years, 20 years, 40 years. And then I'll ask this question. How many books of the Bible, your choice, whatever books, how many books of the Bible do you feel confident enough in to open right now in front of me and explain with confidence? Is there a book of the Bible that you feel that you can open up with little to no preparation and simply, with confidence, explain it to the person next to you? I have elders in the churches that say, you know, I don't think I could do that with any book of the Bible. I have Christians that have been in church for a long time Let's, let's reverse the question. How long do you think that a person should be in the church before they could explain with confidence the context all the way through of one book of the Bible? A little book. Colossians only four chapters. And I'm getting, and this is what I presented to our presbytery, and that was just all pastors and elders. And I said, you know, in my church, I don't think, I don't think anyone can. And that's on me. So, when the prophets showed up and they talked to Israel, they were pretty clear, right? They said this and this and this. And when the apostles wrote their epistles, they were letters sent to be read, not letters to, you know, spend nine years going through one chapter and incrementally, you know, spooning it out, right? Now, I'm not against that. I mean, that's how rich the Word of God is. We can do that with the Word of God, but they were letters that were sent to be read, and they were written clearly, and the people read them, but I am in Reformed churches all capitals, and there are the vast majority of people that have responded in honesty and transparency to me have said, no, I, I don't know that I could do that. I, I don't know that I could explain with confidence my choice of one book of the Bible. I would say that is spiritual starvation because the Word is what we eat. The Word is what we uh, feed upon. I think one of the problems that we have here in our, that is, that is, uh, that is ours, is that we have, uh, we have put systematics above knowing the scriptures, the scriptures that the systematics are actually constructed from. I'm not against systematics, but I know people who know confession and systematic theology, but they do not know 
the scriptures. They do not know the Bible. Um, I think that they know the definitions, but definitions aren't what you live your life by when it comes to how the word is presented to us. We live our life by the imperatives that are given to us. If we live our lives by definition, then all we can do is answer a question. But if we live our life by imperatives, imperatives say, you must live this way, you need to do this, look what Jesus has done for you, look what he has accomplished for you, so therefore you go, and in gratitude and thanksgiving and in love for him, you live this way. That's a whole different thing than definition. And of course, in our circles, we want to define everything, right? We want to parse it. We want to explain it. We turn it into a science. We take the whole and divide it into parts. And then our people know parts, but they don't always know how to get those parts back together to the whole. One way that I've discerned this is I will ask people, what does covenant mean? And when I, boy, these glasses are really something. You are all, you actually all look better this way because you're all fuzzy. <laughs> but I'm thankful for them because I could not see this well. Um, I ask, what is covenant? As I teach on covenant, I say now at the blackboard, what is covenant? And people will say, uh, it's a cutting. And that's, that's they've, they've been listening to somebody. That's, it's a cutting. Or it is a promise. Or it is an agreement. Or it is a, it's a qualified, conditional agreement. That's what covenant is. And then I say, what about identity? What are they giving me? They're giving me definitions. What, what about, what does covenant mean? What, is, what about it means identity? It, it is, it, what if it means belonging? What if it means salvation? I mean, I think that's what covenant means. You gave me a definition, but what does it mean? What does it mean to you? I ask people now, when God made covenant with Abraham, what happened next? Almost everyone says he broke covenant. No, he didn't do that next. He worshiped. He traveled, he built an altar, and he worshiped God. And then he traveled again, and he built an altar, and then he worshiped God. That's what he did. Yes, he broke covenant, but he also kept covenant, and he also struggled with covenant. He also renewed covenant, right? But all, I get the quick, he broke covenant. What is covenant? We're either covenant keepers or covenant breakers. Well, maybe we're both. Maybe that's the graph of our lives. So you see what I'm coming in? And so if this is the quick response, if this is what's in the forefront of people's minds and in their thinking, then I think we have a problem. I was, uh, recently we had a lot of discussion about some things in our church and, and uh, it, it bothered me deeply. And again, I feel like it's my fault as pastor because I've been pastor of the same church for 20 years. I'm going to do this a little bit. Is that intimidating? <laughs> do, did, my, did it seem like my prestige just went up a little bit? That's how I roll. Yeah, that's how you roll. Um, where I 
found that well-educated, well-read people in my congregation quoted the Bible out of context without any knowledge at all. And not just one verse, but I mean like rapid fire in discussion. Boom, boom, boom. And I'm thinking, no, no, no. <laughs> How can that happen in our churches? A friend of mine was, years ago, was dating his, his soon-to-be wife. And, uh, well, at the very beginning of his dating this, this woman, um, they were going somewhere in her car, and she started playing her music, was, which was contemporary Christian music, right? And he mocked it, and he started tearing it down. He's like, yeah, Jesus is my friend, Jesus is my friend, you know? And, of course, you know, she got really angry about this. And she said, Jesus is our friend. And he snapped, he goes, no, he's not. And this guy knew his theology backwards and forwards. I mean, he was just uh, brilliant. And so the next date, she opens up the Gospel of John, where Jesus says to the disciples, you are my friends. Now, if the Bible alluded, just kind of alluded to the fact that we were Jesus' friends. That would be huge, would it not? I mean, would that not be freaking huge? That Jesus is our friend? What if there was some more heavy hints that our relationship with Jesus was more than just disciples or followers, but that we, we were actually really kind of close to him? That would be something, wouldn't it? But when Jesus says you're my friend? <laughs> wow! And this guy who could quote the Westminster Confession backwards in Latin. Well, maybe not that much, but I mean, he was, he was probably, maybe. Did not know, was not aware that in the narrative, Jesus says, you are my friends. How can you live your Christian life not knowing that? How can you live a Christian life? How can you now read your Bible and wherever you're reading it, you're not focused, you're not conscious of the fact that Jesus is your friend. You're not conscious of the fact that covenant doesn't mean a cutting, it doesn't mean an agreement, it doesn't mean a contract, it means that you belong to the king of the universe, that God is your father, that Jesus is your Lord, right? You see where I'm coming from? Suddenly now there's a disconnect in your heart and in your mind when you do listen to the word preached, when you are reading that commentary, when you are listening to that podcast, when you are doing your daily devotion. You're doing these things and it's quite possible that there are things in your head that are causing you not to get the word of life like you need to get it. I mean, when I was in other circles, you could open any verse of the Bible, and to me, it was evangelism. That's all it was. Evangelism or you're not doing enough. That was the only two categories, right? So that's possible. <coughs> Many of you are from other backgrounds before you became Reformed, right? Before you came to the truth, the full truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, right? And you remember how... Every sermon and everything was just right here, right on those things. Well, we have the same kinds of problems. I, uh, 
I think also the church lends itself to hurting us, unfortunately. Like, for instance, um, if you wanted to know the Bible, and I, was, and I typically am teaching through Matthew, uh, if I'm going to go through the Gospel of Matthew with you, what, what am I probably going to do in the Reformed Church? I'm probably, I'm probably going to teach theology through Matthew. I'm probably going to be throwing out soteriology. Numentology, harmontology. I'm probably going to reference the Westminster Confession. Canons of Dort. I'm probably going to say Calvin said this about this. Luther said this. Burkhoff had this insight. And not only that, I'm probably going to teach the other three Gospels while I'm teaching Matthew. And what are you going to think? You're going to love it. It's going to be great. I mean, serious, you're going to be like, wow, my pastor, or, or Lawrence, he, man, he's teaching through Matthew. You wouldn't believe it. This is so good. And you know what? It would be really good. It's in the category of good. It's not in the category of bad. But what else is going on is you are going to be sitting out there, and you're going to be thinking, I could never do that. I could never explain Matthew that way. And so, therefore, you're thinking only the guys up here know the Bible and can know the Bible, and you can't. If I go through Colossians, what's going to take place? Am I going to stay in Colossians? Am I going to stay with, with what Paul is saying to the, to the Christians there? Or what am I going to do? Well, there's in chapter 1, there's that big hymn that he inserted in there that's creedal and confessional and it's just exalting Christ, we're going to have to stay there for quite a while. You're going to be thinking, well, I couldn't, I couldn't pick up Colossians and read that and understand Colossians. Especially when he goes from that to, to going through all of Paul's letters and then comparing them to Peter's letters. You're going to be thinking, well, I could never open my Bible and explain Colossians to anyone, because I can't do all of that. I don't have time. I'm hanging sheetrock 60 hours a week. I'm in front of a keyboard. I've got an hour commute to work and back. I hardly have any time with my kids. I can't do that. Do you feel me? You kind of get what's going on here? James K.A. Smith, in his book, Desiring the Kingdom, also posits that we have separated worship from worldview. Think about that for a moment. Worldview became the big deal, you know, like 30 years ago. Maybe even further back, Francis Schaeffer probably gave us that, or at least popularized it. He gave us worldview, and so we will have worldview conferences, will we not? Well, there's a lot of books on worldview. There's also a lot of books on worship, but ne'er the twain meet, right? Because what is worship anyway? Worship is you come on Sunday morning and you sing and you hear a sermon and you confess your sins, you do prayers of the people, you do all these things, and then that's it. That's worship. What is worldview? <laughs> worldview is apologetics. Worldview is discerning the times and and, and figuring all this out, this is, this is science, this is 
investigation, and then it's preparation, and now you're ready to defend the faith, and now we're out there defending a faith that we don't even know the, how to teach one book of the Bible or explain one book of the Bible. And we have created, and again, you understand there are glorious exceptions to this, right? I'm not talking about them. But what we have created is mostly a, 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 a um, demographic of Christian that really can push people into a corner in defending the faith. That they can carry their own water when it comes to explaining and, under, and, and helping others understand worldview. And they can see error 10 miles away before it ever gets close to them. They can watch a movie, read a book, listen to a song, and parse it and divide it up and say what's good about it and what's bad about it. But that same demographic, most of the time, doesn't have a devotional heart for worship. They don't have a life that matches the, the uh, enormity of their intellect. And because of that, spiritually, even though we've got all this, we remain anemic and hungry. Goodness, I'm almost out of time. And look, I've got pages and pages and pages here. So I have to make some choices. We talk about always reforming. That's one of our, that's one of the things that our motto is, right? Always reforming. And when we use that, what we use it as is the church needs to always consider what they are believing, what they're thinking. It's usually in the realm of thought. We want to make sure all the T's are crossed and all the I's are dotted. But always reforming was not, uh, that phrase was not first used. The origin of that phrase, according to um, Godfrey, was coined by Van Lodenstein. And he coined that, this Dutch uh, pietist back in the Second Reformation of the Dutch people. Uh, his concerns were very similar to those of the English Puritans. They all believed that once the externals of religion had been carefully and faithfully reformed according to the Word of God, whatever we're thinking, whatever we're doing, it's in sync with the Bible. So our confession, our creed, our sermons, all of that, it is derived directly from the Scripture. There's no contradiction between the two. So once the externals of religion had been carefully and faithfully re reformed according to the Word of God, the great need was for ministers to lead people in the true religion of the heart. This is from a reformed guy. The true religion of the heart. They saw the great danger of their day, not as false doctrine or superstition or idolatry, but formalism. The danger of formalism is that a church member could subscribe to true doctrine, participate in true worship in a biblically regulated church, and yet still not have true faith. As Jesus had warned against the Pharisees of his day, citing the prophet Isaiah, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. The part of religion that always need reform, needs reforming is the human heart. It is vital religion and true faith that must be constantly cultivated. 
Formalism, indifferentism, and conformism must all be rigorously opposed by a faithful ministry. Van Lodenstein and those who stood with him believed that the canons of Dort presented a vision of true religion like their own. In the battle against Arminianism, one of the great issues had been the doctrine of regeneration. In 16th century Reformed theology, theologians used regeneration as one of the several synonyms for sanctification. And on he goes. But what Lodenstein was famous for, this phrase, always reforming, was not the technicalities of how we present our faith in confessional language or how we say this is what we mean by this word or this phrase. Always reforming was not those. Those were already taken care of. They were already a matter of record. And now, once we have our liturgy right, our confession right, and the exposition of Scripture right, he says, with all of that, we still need to be always reforming, and he's talking about our hearts. Now, there are a bazillion articles out there on patterns of behavior in our tuned in, um, I can't, see I'm so old I can't even think of the right synonyms, the right, our tuned in and connected, there it is, right, our connected world. We're about to, uh, the, the babies among us here are, are going to be the I generation. You've heard of this, you've read of this, they're going to be the I generation. They're never going to know a time where there wasn't, uh, they weren't connected in some way, unless we have some Mennonites here. I mean, some real hardcore Mennonites. Um, they're always going to be connected. And so uh, you can, and you probably have done this, you can go on Facebook or other places and you can have uh, anything, any, any kind of algorithm that can, has access to your daily life can actually give you a summation of, what, of who you are and what you're doing and how you're le le leading and living out your daily life. I mean, you can do this on Facebook, right? Some of you do this. You go in and you, you say, what, what word did I use mostly in my Facebook messages and postings? And you know, it comes up with this kind of, this, this design thing where some of these words are bigger in different colors, and so that's you. And you do that and you go, ugh. I didn't want to be known like that. I, I, you know, I'm, I was unaware. I was unaware that I used the word like all the time. Okay. And there it is. It's not someone made this up for you. They just took you and they put you and they made you a graph or they made you a collection of words or they, they said this is, your, this is how you respond and this is how much you smile or don't smile. It's all right there. It's just simply taking your life and graphing it. When we are not full of God's word, we're going to eat something else. That's why when we are starving spiritually at the banquet table that we have this, these days, what we will do is if we're still hungry, we're not, if we're not full, then we're going to dine 
on worldliness. And worldliness isn't, isn't the, the, you know, the uninformed pietist. It's not about hymn lines, though those are important. It, it's not about uh, vices like smoking and drinking, which are not vices unless they're abused. Uh, it's not about dancing, because we're dancing today, right? Uh, it's not about leaving all those things. It's about changing teams. That's what worldliness is. It's about putting on the other team's uniform because they are cool and they are excited and they are winners and they are happy and they are successful and everyone thinks they're great and now I'm talking like them, I'm thinking like them, I'm wearing their uniform. That's what worldliness is. And I see that in the church. Because if we are not full, we're going to feast somewhere else. We're going to delight in other things. And if we have done something as the Reformed Church in our teaching, in our presentations, in our helping people understand how to approach the Scripture, or if we haven't taught you how to explain one book of the Bible or five books of the Bible so that you can explain them to someone with no hesitation and with confidence so that you can get to the point where you can feed on the Word and you're getting full of the Word, then I apologize on my behalf. But if that's not happening, you're going to know the Word and you're going to wear their uniform. You're going to know the word, or you know the trappings of the word, or the, the theology of the word, or you're going to know the definitions, but you're still going to want to belong. You're going to still want to have purpose. You're going to still want to be happy. You're going to still want to be excited. And because of that, if you're not going to find this spiritually, you're going to find it in the secular area. That's, I'm afraid, where our churches are. I'm seeing it more and more in our young people. But let me say this. When Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he was not talking simply about sustenance. Sustenance is you come home and uh, from the game or from school or from work and your, your mom or your wife says, uh, meatloaf tonight. And everybody goes, yeah, you can live on that. That'll keep you alive. Hey, we've got chicken noodle soup. Yay. <laughs> That's not what Jesus meant by those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. It meant that they approach the Bible, they approach wanting to know God's Word as prime rib, as street tacos, as a cold craft brew on a hot day, or a cold day, or any day. 
that it's something that you savor, that delights, that it, it kicks in the endorphins, that as you're taking it in, you're like, ha, ah, this is, and it's not just sustenance alone. It is desire. And once we get to that point, when we begin to feast on God's word and grow spiritually, because it is a desire, it's a devotion, there will be a reformation in our lives. And it's not going to just be reclaiming the definitions, you get me? It's going to be a life that is just remarkable. It's a life that is infectious. Years ago, I was in, I remember vividly, I had Alan Redpath's book, The Mark, no, The Mark of a Leader, The Mark of a Man. It was the study of David. Alan Redpath, you remember that? That's not the right title. But I'm, in, I'm at, I'm at uh, Wendy's. And I'm, I've got the book right here, and I'm going to get a burger and fries and Coke, of course. And I'm going to sit down. It's my lunch break. And a postal worker, postman, walks in behind me. And he's waiting in line, too. It's just he and I right now. He goes, ah, that's a great book. What do you know about this book? You're a postman. I, I'm, a, I'm a seminary student. You're... You're just a guy off the street. You're, a, you're, a, a, you're an employee. But he and I had this conversation about Ellen Radpath's book of title, which I cannot remember right now. That's what it'll be like. I mean, he didn't say, what does covenant mean to you? Well, let me tell you the definition of covenant. It was relational. It was a conversation. It was two brothers talking about our Heavenly Father and how He works in time and space and history. It was fantastic. That's the kind of conversations that pour over because you, you know what? You do talk about the things you're excited about, the things that you love, the things that you're into, the things that you give your time and your life to. You talk about those things and you don't care who listens or is listening in. You don't care what venue you're at, whether it's public or private, you're going to talk about these things, you're going to live out these things. And I believe that if you and I begin to approach the scriptures and begin to feed upon them, because the reason that the scriptures exist is because you and I exist. God created people. He recreated people, regenerated them, brought them into his family. They are his, his daughters and his sons. And God the Father wants to speak to us, guide us, encourage us, give us something to live for that's beyond what we could possibly do. We only have a part. We only have a few lines in the play. But we're glad to get the part. That's how we should be approaching the scriptures. And if we don't, um, we're going to get worldly. We're going to stay worldly. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, help us indeed to have this appetite. Help us to be finally tired.
of what we are experiencing. Help us to rescue our uh, children from the apathy and from the uh, interference that is in our lives and guide us as ministers, as uh, elders, to, and as fathers and as mothers to do all we can to um, follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.